it is great to see you this morning. Welcome to Community Church. We're so glad that you're here. Um, it's great to have the rain. Goodness, we've needed some rain. It's been really dry. So praise the Lord for the rain this morning. Pray that we can get some more of it, that's for sure. But I hope you've had a great week, and it's so good to have you here this morning because we're going to be continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke. And as we make our way through Luke chapter 18, we've come to this portion, portion of Scripture here where Jesus encounters a young, wealthy ruler. Okay, that's the extent of the description that we get of this particular man. But he seems like a nice enough guy, you know, okay, on the surface. I mean, he had clearly done well for himself. But as Christ heads back out on the road, remember, we're on this journey toward Jerusalem. And Mark tells us here in Mark 10, 17, that Christ heads back out on the road on his journey toward Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, this man comes running up to him. Not only did he run up to him, but he knelt down before him, Mark says. And I'm sure he had a very heavy heart because he asked Christ a very eternal question. Even though this man had plenty of stuff, he still wondered what kind of inheritance he might get in eternity. And so in our passage today, which is going to be in Luke 18, verses 18 through 30, so you're welcome to turn there in your Bibles, Luke 18, starting in verse 18 all the way through verse 30, we're going to see a man who is struggling within himself about life beyond the grave, but who's ultimately unwilling to sort of trade his adult dreams, you might say, for a childlike faith. Now, remember, Christ had just called the little children to come to him. We just studied this. Why did he do that? Well, he tells us, he says, it's because such is the kingdom of God. And whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. That was in verses 16 and 17 right before our passage here. And so one of the things that we're going to learn from Scripture this morning is that the longer we wait to come to Christ by faith, then the more we're going to begin to fill our lives with lesser loves, so to speak. And of course, that's only going to further complicate our decision ultimately to truly ever follow Christ. And so that's the setting. Uh, so would you pray with me again quickly, and then we'll get into our text this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the morning you've given to us. We are grateful for the rain you're sending, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for this place where we can gather here freely and sing your praise, where we can open up your word and discover the truth in it. And so I just pray this morning that as we look into this text, into your scriptures, that you would open our hearts and open our minds to see the truth that's there. We don't want to put our opinion in it. We don't want to read anything into it. We just want to take out what's there. So please help us to rightly divide the word of truth this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18, reads like this. Now a certain ruler asked him, meaning Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Verse 21. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. 
verse 23. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful because he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 26, and those who heard it said, who then can be saved? But he said that things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, see, we've left all and followed you. And so he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Amen. So your comparison passages for this text here, you're going to find those in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. You'll find them also in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. And in those passages, there are some additional details there that I think will you'll find helpful for further study on this passage. So I would encourage you to go to those cross-reference comparison passage and um, study this passage further. But here, Christ encounters a rich young ruler, and Luke begins like this in verse 18. Now a certain rich, or excuse me, a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in Matthew 19, 20 is where we pick up that this man was also young. Matthew tells us he was young, and so you're probably familiar with the phrase rich young ruler. Uh, that's the passage that we're in. And so we take all of the synoptic gospels to get that phrasing when referring to this passage. But the scripture is not clear on what capacity this young man ruled. We, we don't know. We know that he was a wealthy young man. We know that he was a man with some level of authority. But then we also know that as Mark mentioned in Mark ten seventeen, that this man, this rich man, this young man with authority, he came running to Christ and he knelt before him. And so what we see here is two things. Primarily, we see urgency and we see humility. And I think both of those things are important here. Uh, because when God brings conviction upon our soul, then <laughs> that should be something to cause us immediate reaction. Okay, In other words, when he brings conviction on our soul, when he brings concerns about eternity, life beyond the grave into our minds, then it's always best to seek those answers immediately and to do it with all humility. So we see a great model here. But right away, I've got to respect this young man's question even though I think it's probably mistaken on its premise, at least this guy was thinking, he was wondering, he was pondering about eternal things because I think that's good because most people don't actually do that. Most people don't actually give second thought to what happens after the grave. I mean, millions and millions of people, frankly, march straight into eternity completely ignorant about what awaits. And so part of our duty as a church as a family of faith, is to educate those who are ignorant about Christ. Ignorance doesn't mean you're stupid. It just means you don't know what you don't know. So our job is to get the good news of the gospel out to those who don't know. But I want you to note something important here in verse 18. Note the words, I do. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, honestly, this is probably one of the most common mistakes that people make here when considering their eternity, okay? 
We want to know what can I do? Is there something that I could possibly do, right? I had a gentleman uh, a couple weeks ago now leave me a message on my phone and he was wondering if he could give some money to the church and we would count that as community service. And I had to laugh at that. Because money cannot be counted as community service any more than works can be counted as righteousness. You see, the blood of Christ is my only hope of heaven. And so the point I'm making is that too often we all want to find that loophole, don't we? We all want to find that loophole. We all want to get to heaven our way. That's how we want to do this. We want to count money as service. We want to count works as righteousness. But of course, that's not how God redeems at all. So notice what Christ addresses first here. I find that interesting. Verse 19. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. Literally, the words that is are not in the original text. They should be in italics. It should read, no one is good but one. God. So right away, Jesus corrects this young man's theology right off the bat. Young man, none are good but God. And of course, if this young man had read the scriptures, he would have already known that. I mean, the Jews clearly taught that God alone was good. Let me give you a few examples. Psalm 25, 8 says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners the way. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And then Psalm 86, 5 tells us, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Amen. So if we can just understand this one thing, that God alone is good, then that's going to keep us from asking questions like, what can I do to inherit eternal life? I can do nothing. There's nothing I can do, right? (laughs) Because I'm not good. That's why. Notice here, Jesus never claimed to be a good teacher. However, he did, and frankly is, claiming to be God. And in the next few verses, Christ is going to call this young man to follow him. In other words, young man, don't follow me because you think I'm a good teacher. That's not a good reason. Follow me because I'm God. Therefore, I'm good. That's the reason Christ is good, because he is God. The fact that Jesus is God is what makes him Good, not his ability to to teach, right? So, I mean, of course, he's the master at that too, but one of the most popular inconsistencies among most false religions, you could say, is to simply acknowledge Jesus as a good teacher, to simply acknowledge Christ as a prophet, but to deny him as God. That's a very common mistake in, in false religions. But listen, Jesus did not command this young man to go out and get his life right and then go find God and follow him. No, he's about to tell him, come and follow me. That's what Jesus is going to tell him to do. So what are we to make of a statement like that, except that, well, of course, Jesus is God. Verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father. And your mother. Now, Mark adds the phrase, do not defraud. 
in Mark 10, 19. And Matthew actually adds, love your neighbor as yourself. So a little bit different there, but right here, Christ gives this young man five of the 10 commandments. Specifically, he gives him five of the last six commandments from the second table of the Decalogue. They're the second half of the 10 commandments, which by the way, all deal with our own relationship toward man. So the first section of the 10 commandments, we call that the first table. Okay, the first table of the Ten Commandments, they all deal with our relationship with God. Okay, and it's interesting. And I believe on purpose that Christ left out the very important and final Tenth Commandment as well. And I think we'll see why in just a minute. Verse 21. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. Yeah, sure enough. So here we see this young man's problem, don't we? His problem was the same as the Pharisee who was standing in the temple in our study last week. This rich young ruler was self-righteous. Yeah, he may have thought that he had kept the letter of the law. Okay, that might have been his thinking, but no doubt, as Pastor David Guzik points out, he certainly did not keep them in the full and perfect sense in which Jesus spoke of in his Sermon on the Mount. Absolutely not. Nevertheless, this rich young man, he'd been a good guy. He was probably honest, upright in his own eyes. He thought he had done pretty well for himself. He thought he was honest among all of his relationships with other people. He was a good man as far as man was concerned, right? However, as Christ is going to point out, he lacked in his duty and his devotion and his loyalty to God. He might have lived a good and wholesome life. He might have treated everybody with respect. He might have done all of the right things, but he still lacked the most important relationship of all. And so Christ was about to point out the very thing that had kept him out of his relationship with God. This was this young man's blind spot. This was basically the stumbling block that he had put before himself. This was the very thing that had diverted his attention away from God. What was it? His riches. It was his riches. So you could say that all this young man really wanted was more of what he already had. In other words, this man's love for riches led him to covet. He was covetous. And this is why Christ likely left out commandment number 10. Thou shalt not covet. It was in order to help this young man see his blind spot. His, his point of weakness, he was a covetous man and he needed to know that. He wasn't aware of that. And so Christ is now going to give him a task that will further illustrate his point. It's wonderful. Verse 22. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, Oh, you still like one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now in Matthew chapter 10 verse 21, it tells us that Jesus also looked at him and loved him. I love that. So Jesus not only heard what this young man said, while he was speaking, Christ was looking at him lovingly. Man, what a great picture. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us at its most basic level that Christ loves sinners. Jesus loves sinners We should note the compassion here and the concern from Christ. He was listening. He cared. He looked at him with love. He heard him. 
So please don't fall for the poor theology that's out there today that, that says Christ doesn't love everybody. It's just not true. There's some who will tell you that God loves people in different ways. Some he loves salvifically. Some he loves less. Christ didn't actually die for everyone, etc., etc. And that's because of a mistaken understanding, in my opinion, of the true love of Christ and the teaching of the scriptures. But I want you to know something. The kind of love that Christ had for this man was agape love. That's what the word is. That's the word that he used. That's the God love. It's agapeo. It's unconditional. Listen, even though this man, we have no indication from Scripture whatsoever that this man ever followed Jesus. We don't know that he ever did. But one thing that we do know that's very clear from Scripture is that Christ loved him. He loved him with agape love. That's important to know. But I want you to look at what's happening here. This man... He had integrity. He, he was a good man by all accounts. I mean, he kept, quote, all of the human elements of the law anyway, in his eyes. But did he really love his neighbor? Remember, Matthew adds that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Did he really love his neighbor? Well, according to Christ here in our text today, no, he did not. Apparently, his wealth was hoarded for himself. It wasn't distributed to the poor, Right? So he wasn't really loving his neighbor as himself, but I'm sure still yet, even though at this young man's funeral, everybody in the town came out and said, oh, he was a good guy. He really was a good man. I'd done business with him. He was an upright kind of guy, honest businessman. He was a family man. But you know what? None of that could ever have given him eternal life. None of that. And so what Christ is doing now is speaking to this young man's heart. He's speaking directly to his heart, not his hands, not his feet. It's not about what I can do. It's all about what Christ has done. It's all about what Christ will do shortly. Remember, we're just a few steps away from Jerusalem at this point. It won't be long until we're in here talking about the triumphal entry. So we're getting close. Christ gave him commandments number five through nine, and they all deal with with our behavior toward each other. But now Christ gets to the very essence of the commandments as a whole. Okay, and he speaks directly to this rich young man's heart. And so what he does is he takes him all the way back to the first table of the commandments. Listen to what those commandments are. You can read about them in Exodus chapter 20. But those first four, again, they all deal with our relationship with God. Okay, the vertical relationship. They deal with our own heart attitude toward God, you could say. Commandment number one, of course, is you shall not have any gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself any carved image. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Okay, and then the tenth, you shall not covet. Those are the ones that Christ left out. And so Christ, remember, had told this young man, you lack one thing. So go sell all you have, distribute to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. And so the truth is, this is the teaching, okay? If I keep number one, you shall have no other gods before me, then it will keep me from committing number 10. I will not covet. 
I will not want anything else if all I have and all I want is God, right? Which necessarily will then keep me from committing commandments two through nine and all down the line. In other words, let me say it like this. If I put my trust in God first, if I have no other gods before him, if God is first in my life, I will not covet anything or anyone else whatsoever because I will be trusting in God to provide all of my needs, all of them. I won't be greedy. I'll have all that I ever need. And therefore, I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm not going to steal. I won't murder. I won't lie. I won't worship an idol. I won't use God's name inappropriately. And by the way, I won't forget to show up for worship and keep the Sabbath holy. Right? You see, when Christ ceases to become that one thing, the main thing in my life, then I can be drawn away by literally anything. For this man, it happened to be riches. Riches were what kept his attention and and kept him away from God. And so Christ revealed his covetous heart to him. So what's the application? Well, it's simple, really. What is it for me? What is it for you? What is that thing, that one thing that is constantly calling me away from God? Is it pleasure? Is it comfort? Maybe it's laziness. What is that one thing? Maybe it's a relationship with someone else other than God. I don't know. What is that one thing? Think about it. The very thing that would cause me sorrow if Christ called me to leave it and come to him. What is it? And by the way, we should know that Christ has already called all of us to leave it. He's already said that. He's called me to forsake all and to follow him. But I want you to notice here that Christ is not telling this man, hey, run out and keep all of the law perfectly, and then you can have eternal life. No, absolutely not. That's not the teaching. Christ is using the law to expose his sin. That's the purpose of the law from the beginning. And so Christ is using it perfectly here. Paul said in Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. Amen. Galatians chapter 3 verse 21 says, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, listen to this, if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would not have been by the law. Exactly right. And lastly, Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Christ is using the law quite perfectly in this moment. You see what he's doing is he's taking the law and he's using it as a mirror. Holding it up in front of this man to show him his sin. That's what the law is for. He wasn't using the law to show this man the way to salvation. Absolutely not. He was using the law to show him his own need for salvation. And that's exactly the purpose of the law. I like what G. Campbell Morgan said. He said, Christ is saying to this man, if you want life, put out everything that is ministering to your self-centered satisfaction. Man, that's good. That is good. I'm going to read that again. If you want life, 
put out everything that is ministering to your self-centered satisfaction. Oh, you can come to Christ with all your stuff. Absolutely, bring it. But once you get there, you're going to have to lay it down. You're going to have to lay it down because you're not going to be carrying your stuff with you into eternity, right? Christ alone is our hope. Christ said, come to me. We bring our junk. We lay it at the foot of the cross. But then he says, come after me. Come to me. That's salvation. That's justification. That's regeneration. That's being born again. I'm leaving it all behind. I'm I'm coming to Christ with all I have but sin. And I'm saying, Jesus, save me. And he does. I put my faith in him and I'm made new. Then he says, come after me. That's when he says, take up your cross and follow me. That's when it's time to leave it all behind. We can take none of it with us. Verse 23. But when he heard this, the rich man, when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. Yeah, why would you do this, Jesus? Why would you do that? This was a good man. Why would you call him to leave the very thing that he loved the most? Why would you do that? Well, Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Christ wasn't trying to be a big meanie to this guy, okay? He was trying to show him that he was in bondage to his wealth. You're in bondage to your wealth, man. You're a slave to your sin. So Christ was trying to set him free. Now, let's be careful here, all right? Let's be careful. We're not going to be legalists. We're just going to read the scripture, what it says, take it at face value. This is a specific command to a specific person. And Christ was in the process of exposing his sin. In other words, he might not be calling you to sell everything, right? Because money might not be your idol. You see the picture? Now, of course, he calls all of us to be givers. He calls all of us to be very generous with all of the blessings that he gives to us. We must all forsake all in order to follow him, right? But some things are going to be harder for me to leave than for you to leave, and vice versa. You get the idea. Christ knows my heart. Christ knows your heart. And so make no mistake about it. He will call me to crush whatever idol I have. My idol might not be money. It might be pleasure. It might be comfort. It might be laziness. It might be whatever. He will call me to crush that, just like he called this rich young man to crush his idol, which was his wealth. Most people want to live their best life now, right? That's the buzzword. That's the phrase. Live your best life now while they ignore Christ and they ignore his word. And then, oh, they expect to go ahead and gain heaven when they die, right? Lord, I don't need you right now. I just expect you to be there in eternity when everything matters. But why would anyone want to spend an eternity with a God that they don't want to serve now? It makes no sense at all. Matthew Henry said, many, after a long struggle between their convictions, listen to this, and their corruptions, let their corruptions carry the day. Mm. Many, after a long struggle between their convictions, I know what's right, I know what I need to do, and their corruptions, their sin, their idol, they let their corruptions carry the day. They're very sorry that they can't serve both, he says, But if one must be quitted, it shall be their God and not their worldly gain. Wow. You see, the difficulty comes when we place our love and we place our trust 
in utterly corruptible things rather than in Christ. That's the problem. No, I just didn't say money is bad, dollar bills aren't bad, but trust me, I can make them that way. No doubt about it. How I use them, how I love them, the same is true with any idol, right? So be careful. Good things can become corrupt when I start loving them. And any of my worldly blessings that God has given me can become cursings when I begin to start trusting them. So I've got to be careful. Guys, nothing here is going to buy me heaven. Okay, the question was, what can I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is, I can do nothing to inherit eternal life. I can't do anything to inherit it. Salvation is a gift of God, completely given to those who trust in Christ alone by faith, right? We don't know what the rich young ruler ultimately decided to do. We're not given that information. Here's something that we do know based on the other Gospels. When he was convicted, when he was standing there, as Matthew Henry said, in between his convictions and his corruptions, this is how he responded. In Matthew 19, 22, he went away sorrowful. He went away. Now, was it godly sorrow that ultimately led to his repentance resulting in salvation? 2 Corinthians 7.10, we don't know. Okay, so there's really no use speculating on his eternity because I have more personal things that I need to be considering this morning regarding my own heart, regarding my own selfishness, regarding my own repentance. So I need to pay close attention here to how Christ responds to this rich man's sorrow. It's very interesting. Verse 24. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Wow, how sad to be so rich, yet at the same time be so sorrowful. I hope you know this morning that wealth does not equal joy. It can't give you that, right? Just trying to replace God with stuff is only going to make you a miserable person with a lot of stuff. That's it. Guys, many ways, wealth is way more dangerous than poverty. It's very dangerous. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Luke 6, 20, when Christ was on the mountain preaching, blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke, he leaves out spirit. He says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Wealth is fine, but it's dangerous, so know what you're dealing with. It seems like this man was more sorrowful at the prospect of losing his possessions than he was on missing out on eternal life. Jesus said how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now, in Mark's gospel, Jesus actually repeats this phrase for emphasis. Mark 10, 23 and 24, because the word of God says that his disciples were astonished at his words. They were astonished. Guys, let's just admit it straight up this morning. Idols are hard to leave, aren't they? They are. But the truth is they cannot come with us. My idol cannot come with me when I follow Jesus Christ. It has to stay in Sodom. Remember Lot's wife? That's what Jesus said. Luke 17, 32. She longed for the old life. We know what happened to her. 
No looking back. See, the truth is that wealth, of course, in and of itself, is not a bad thing at all. Jesus is in no way condemning wealth here. But what he's condemning is our love and our allegiance to it. Okay, this man thought he was a good man. He thought he had done some really good things, but none of those good things would ever in a million years merit him heaven. Guys, I have no doubt. And I take no pleasure in saying this for sure, but I have no doubt based on scripture that there are some good people in hell. Because they've allowed their hearts to remain tethered to their idol. They wouldn't leave it. They didn't crush their idol when they come to Christ. They held on to it. Verse 25, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, let's be careful here again and not over-spiritualize the text. Right? Luke was a doctor. We know that. Okay? The word he uses for needle here means a doctor's needle. So that's what he's talking about. But Christ uses this analogy, this extreme analogy, by design. Okay, so he's using hyperbole here and an extreme example to make his point. In other words, guys, it would be easier to stuff a camel through the eye of a needle than for you to work your way to heaven by your own righteousness. It can't happen. Another way to say this is that we have more camel in us than we do righteousness. Like we're mostly camel. Therefore, if my God is wealth, I'm not getting in. I'm not getting into God's kingdom. Whatever it is that's sitting on the throne of my heart, other than Jesus Christ, will most certainly keep me out of his kingdom. Guys, I'm never going to be converted if I do not leave all of those lesser gods behind and come to Christ. Christ is not someone that I just add on to my life. Okay, he's not an attachment. Christ is the very one, the very one that I leave everything to follow. Why? Well, so that I can gain eternal life. So that I can truly be redeemed. I can be forgiven and made whole in Christ. The truth is he's not going to share his glory or his gift with anyone or anything. He will not share any of my lesser gods with me. That's for sure. Therefore, I have to die to myself that I might live in Christ Jesus. Verse 26. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? Great question. At this point in Mark's narrative, he tells us that the disciples were greatly astonished. And it's a, <laughs> I love the question here. It's so honest, but also it shows us that there's an understanding of sin here. And I, I love that. That's important. I mean, if I can't pull my sin, look at the word picture. If I can't pull my sin through to the righteousness of God into eternity like a camel through the eye of a needle, then how in the world can I be saved? What's it going to take? How can I be justified? Verse 27, but he said to them, oh, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Hmm. Matthew and Mark both say, with God, all things are possible. That's right. Salvation is a gift of God. We cannot save ourselves. That's what's impossible. I'm not getting through the eye of the needle. I can't do it. It's impossible. Literally. Therefore, Christ, through Christ, God has made the impossible possible. 
right? And of course, we know that the, the cost of eternal life is high. What did it cost? It cost Christ his very life. Remember the tax collector that we studied a couple weeks ago? He knew that the price was too high for him to pay. Even though he would have likely been a rich man as well. Tax collectors were wealthy. Okay? But he also realized that he didn't deserve anything from God. You remember the story. We know that his wealth wasn't satisfying his soul. It wasn't cutting it, was it? What did he do? He begged for God's mercy. He begged for it. He asked God to give him the very thing that he didn't deserve. Why did he do that? Because it wasn't possible for him to obtain salvation on his own. It was not, it was not possible, right? His wealth was not enough. His works were not enough. So he humbled himself and he begged God to do the impossible, right? Lord, I need mercy. I need you to give me something that I could never earn. I need you to give me something that I could never accomplish on my own. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I, it's impossible for me. It's possible for you. Lord, would you give me that? Of course, Christ told us that that man went home justified. Verse 28. Then Peter said, see, we have all left all rather and followed you. That word all could literally read our own. So it could read. Then Peter said, see, we have left our own and followed you. Now, remember, Peter and the boys, they already realized who Christ was. They already realized that back in Luke chapter nine, verse 20. Jesus asked Peter straight up. He said, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered correctly. He said, the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God. And so they believed that Jesus was who he said he was, okay? And so after they came to Christ, in other words, after they came to Christ by faith, after they believed in him, well, then what did Christ do next? He called them to come after him. That's Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. And then beyond that, he takes Peter and James and John high up on the mountain, you'll remember, and he showed them his glory there. In other words, guys, what you believed about me is true. And here's the proof. So they believed in Christ, and the evidence of their belief was that they followed him. They followed Jesus. And so the way for me to apply this truth here to my life is to ask myself, what does my own life say about my belief in Jesus Christ? What can other people see in me? Can they see Christ in me? What message am I preaching by how I live? Verse 29 and 30. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Now, Mark adds a couple of things. In Mark 10, 29, it would read, there's no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for my sake or for the gospel's sake or for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come. And so Christ is calling his children in essence here to leave your love of the world. Leave it. Why? For my sake. 
for the sake of the gospel by which you were saved and for the sake of the kingdom where you're going, right? Now, the question is, is that worth it? You're going to have to decide that. I'm going to have to decide that. Is it worth it? Will I take Christ at his word and believe his promise of a better life now and, of course, an eternal life with him if I leave it all and follow him? Do I believe that? Will I take Christ at his word? Again, the cost of a relationship with Christ is free for me. It costs me nothing. However, the cost to follow him will cost me everything. You see, Christ has made the impossible possible through the blood of his cross. He's the bridge that made the way back home to the Father. I couldn't get there, but he made a way. He made a way by his blood. But then he calls me to to leave everything and follow him, right? Grace is not an inheritance that I gain. Rather, it's a gift that I'm given. He gives me grace. But the cost of discipleship is something that he's going to call me to. He's going to call every one of us to. Uh, And we're faced with the reality of, is Jesus worth it? Am I really going to leave everything? But the promise of Christ is that those who do leave everything to follow him, you're going to have a more blessed life here and a more blessed life there. Okay. Now, some of you believers might be like, ah, but my life's been pretty bad. I mean, I've had a lot of tragedy. Things have not gone well. We're not talking about happiness. We're talking about joy. Christ will give you the joy that this world could never give to you. Something that can never be taken away. Something that's not dependent upon my circumstances whatsoever. His joy is everlasting, right? But he does tell us in Mark that, you know what, this life, though it's going to be abundant, it's not going to come without persecution. And so that's the decision. That's the choice we're faced with. To follow Christ fully means that I'm going to be walking headlong into persecutions. Discipleship is hard. Okay, Following Jesus is hard. Don't let anybody tell you that. Come to Christ and live your best life now. (laughs) No. The problem is we want pleasure. We want ease. We want comfort. We struggle with this persecution part. But Jesus said in John 10, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly which is to say a more abundant life today and in the age to come. Guys, eternal life begins the moment you believe. The moment you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, eternal life begins. And life in Christ is always, every time, 100% of the time, more abundant than life outside of Christ. Every time. Yes, persecutions might come, but you will have joy, unending joy. Right? What does the Bible say? Joy that surpasses our understanding. I love that. Lord, why? Lord, what? No, 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 no. Trust in what you know to be true about God. Walk in his peace. Walk in his joy that will never end. We don't have to have all the understanding. All we have to have is the joy that surpasses it. See how that works? That's what life in Jesus Christ looks like. So persecution might come. Let it come. It will not take away my joy. It will not take away the joy of any believer. 
And he, I love what he does in the other gospel accounts, particularly in Matthew chapter 19. He gives these guys another glimpse into the future. Just like when he took him up on the mountain and he revealed himself in his glory and said, hey, what you believed about me? Yeah, I am the Christ of God. And here's your proof. He's given them another promise here. If you follow me, he's talking to his disciples and he's talking about when he returns to set up his millennial kingdom. He talks about it as the regeneration in Matthew 19. He says, this is when I'm going to sit down on my throne in all of my glory. And you 12 disciples sitting here listening to me right now, you're also going to be sitting on thrones, judging the tribes of Israel, all 12 tribes. So what he's doing is he's giving them a peek into their future. He's saying, guys, it might be persecution now, okay? But it's going to be perfect peace later. Glory is at the end. That's where glory is. So in other words, yeah, I'm worth following. Jesus is saying, follow me because I am worth it. Now, we all have to decide that for ourselves. But Christ has given them a glimpse of their own future. He's given you and me a glimpse of our own future. We can have a better life now and one in eternity if we will follow Christ. Do I believe that? Christ is not saying that our works will in any way merit heaven. They will not merit regeneration in any way whatsoever. But rather what he's saying is how fully we follow Christ now, today, once we have been born again, once we have been regenerated, will affect how fully we enjoy the rewards of heaven. Right? I like what Wearsby said here. He says, The rich young ruler is a warning to people who want a Christian faith that does not change their values or upset their lifestyle. Yeah. Jesus does not command every seeking sinner to sell everything and give it to the poor, but he does put his finger of conviction on any area of our life with which we are dishonest. Boom. That's the whole point of what Christ has been saying. You see, it wasn't the law that kept this rich young ruler from inheriting eternal life. It was his love of money that led to his lack of faith. He had a different God. He had a different idol. He had asked Christ what he could do, and Christ told him, he showed him right there what he could do. He said, you know what? Stop living for yourself. Give everything up. And then come follow me. But that ultimately, at least in the moment, it was too much of an ask. That was too big of an ask because he loved his stuff so much. Right? He wanted to keep it, but he wanted to just add God on at the end of his life like an attachment. <laughs> Here's what Paul said. For me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. That's Philippians 1.21. Do you want to live? Live for Christ. Too many of us don't really want to live for Christ. We just want Christ to be there when we die. At the end. Right? After we've done everything that we've ever wanted to do, our entire life, the way we want to do it, we expect God to bail us out in the end. Guys, that's universalism. That's not Christianity. Yes, God is good. Yes, God is just. And therefore, he would never, ever bail somebody out who never really wanted to be with him in the first place. So Christ is saying, come to me now. Leave it all behind, right? Go ahead and beg me for that bailout now. 
Yeah, there's a bailout. We can be completely bailed out of our sin by grace through faith. In Christ alone, now. Come to me now so that you can receive this blessing in this life and blessing in the next through the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. We're almost done. It says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Amen. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they might lay hold on eternal life. Yes, again, there is nothing inherently wrong with wealth. It's to be enjoyed. What does the word say? The living God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Amen. Enjoy your blessings, but don't trust it. Don't put it on the throne of your heart. Don't prop it up as an idol. Don't love it. Right? Why? Because it's uncertain, the Bible says, and it cannot save. So as believers, what we've got to be doing is investing in the time to come. We need to be investing in our eternity, storing up on that good foundation that Paul said to Timothy, which is Christ Jesus. Why? That we might lay hold of eternal life. And so here's some application for you in closing. What am I storing up? What is it? What am I currently laying hold of? What is it that I've been absolutely unwilling to let go of that I might follow Christ more fully? Can I encourage you this morning? Let go of that. Just let it go. Whatever value you've placed on that, it doesn't really matter because when you compare it to Christ, it's overvalued. It's way overvalued. Christ is our real treasure today and for all of eternity, okay? It's Christ. He is our treasure. So what does it matter if I do have to give up everything in this life in order to gain Christ? He's worthy. He's worthy of that. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? Hmm. Guys, I hope you know that, that Christ is not just some old codger in the clouds who doesn't want us to have any fun. That's not who he is. He's not that guy always yelling, get off my lawn, right? Do this, don't do that. That's not who Christ is. He's actually the only one that's concerned enough about my eternal soul that he would warn me about my propensity to follow lesser gods. He's warning me about that. He's the only one who loves us enough to point out our blind spots and to call us out to help us to avoid those pitfalls in our life that are ahead of us that we might not be able to see, but he clearly does. He's the only one who cares enough to call us to himself so we can experience real lasting joy, not the phony kind of self-righteous happiness that the world has to offer. That's a counterfeit. So the promise is this, I can have a better life now, I can have eternal life later if I'm willing to take Christ at his word and leave the things of this world completely behind. Right? I need to not let my love for the world or the things in it create in me a lack of faith. Don't let that happen because everything around you is uncertain. Everything in this life is uncertain. Your wealth that's uncertain. 
You might have plenty of it today. You might not have any of it tomorrow. Your health, you might be fine today. You might not be fine tonight. Your happiness, I could change in the next five minutes if I keep preaching too long. (laughs) Right? It's all uncertain. It's all uncertain, but Christ is certain. He is our firm foundation. He is that thing that's immovable. And Christ is the one who makes the impossible possible. So if I do forsake all and follow him by faith, then he will make sure that I get to lay hold of eternal life. Thank you, Lord. But the key is to find all of my joy and all of my hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, I need to hold all of the things in this life all of my treasures, all of my blessings, all of my material gain, hold all of that with an open hand. Why? So I can cling to Christ and lay hold of heaven. Psalm 62.10 says, If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Amen. So this morning, I guess the encouragement is, let's set our heart on Christ so that we can gain the riches of his glory and the riches of his coming kingdom. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the truth of your scriptures. Thank you for the power of your spirit that truly does guide us into all truth. And I pray, Lord, that as we marinate on the text, as we think through it, as we go to the comparison passages and we study on our own and we get quiet before you this week in prayer, uh, search our hearts, Lord. If there's anything in this life that we're holding too tightly on, help us to let it go. We only want to cling to Christ. Christ alone is our hope. And the cross is enough to save us for all of eternity. Lord, help us to not ever tether our hearts to the things of this world. If we have an idol this morning, we need to crush it. It has to go away. No looking back. So I pray that you would just have your way within our hearts this morning. Speak to us individually as only you can. You know our hearts. You knew the idol of this rich young man. You know mine. So you call all of us to leave it all, forsake it all, and follow you. And the promise is an abundant life here and eternal life later. What a promise. Why in the world would I want to live a few short years that are are like a vapor, you tell us in your word? Why would I want to live for myself here for a small time that's going to be less than the life you could give me anyway if I lived it for you, but then will ultimately cause me to miss out on eternal life? Why would I do that? So Lord, convict our hearts. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for making the impossible possible. We cannot save ourselves. Our works are as filthy rags, and so we run to you and beg for mercy. And if there's anyone who hears this message today and does not have a relationship with you, I pray that they would beg for that mercy right now. That they would come to Christ and believe by faith that you are the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day so that we can have that same hope of eternal life in Christ. And for the rest of us as believers, maybe we've been dragging idols around for far too long. It's time to let it go. Help us to do that. 
So during our time of response, Lord, just help us all to say yes to Jesus. Whatever it is you're putting on our heart, if we need to pray, help us to pray. If we need to kneel and pray, help us to do that. We love you, Jesus, and it's in Christ's holy name that we pray. Amen.